Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of our brilliant attorneys, Brian Green and Kevin Andrews. In today's topic, we will discuss Form I-9, the new form of the new version of the form that has just been released, and um, issues dealing with employers and ICE investigations. We hope to make this uh, part one of a two-part series. Uh, so that you all as businesses, companies, employers, and HR can understand the scenario and the background in which the way the I-9 forms work because we realize that I-9 is something, whether you have one foreign national or 100 foreign nationals or small percentage of your company, you really need to understand how the forms work and how the new form is different, etc. So... The new I-9 form, by the way, was released. It's a brand new form, which was released very recently in March 2013. But it's supposed to go into effect, presumably, uh, in early May, May 8th of 2013, though the American Immigration Lawyers Association is trying to confirm that this effective date is the effective date with the USCIS. The end, for those who are not familiar on the form, is means that no prior versions of this form are allowed. So if you are not using the latest form dated March 8th, 2013, then you will be considered in violation under the I-9 uh, rules. Um, really, they're looking ideally at automation, as, as many of you are aware of the automation of the new I-94 card, which is a new paperless system that is supposed to start becoming operational by the US Customs and Border Protection. Uh, and so having that along with the new, I, the, the new I-9 forms were required in order to jive and work together with this paperless I-94 card. And the new I-94 form is a little bit longer, and it may prove to be difficult for those who had been trained under the previous system. But hopefully, once you hear both Kevin and Brian speak this afternoon, you will be in much greater clarity by the end of the discussion. As always, we try to have our discussions for between 30 to 45 minutes. So without further ado, what I'm going to do is ask Brian to start and say, hey, Brian, so what's so new about the so-called so new I-94 form? And what kind of general pieces of advice would you give to an employer that's trying to figure out where to get started? Thank you, Sheila. The, the new form is a lot different than what we've been do dealing with since 1986. And I'll let Kevin get into a detail about the exact changes. But the guidance I try to give to our clients is, first and foremost, it's your responsibility in completing the form to do so correctly. And the, and the best thing you can do is to start by reading the instructions to the form very carefully. There are a number of changes in the instructions, and if you can read them once, twice, three times before you do your next employee verification, that's the, the best thing you can do. It costs no money at all. Just read the form, read the instructions carefully. After that, I think the employer needs to understand what they're doing. And it's not simply just looking at documents and trying to understand, is this person authorized to work? Beyond that, you un you have to understand that, as in other employment situations, you need to take care 
that while completing the I-9 diligently, you're not overstepping some of the rules and getting into the realm of discrimination, which, which can happen even unintentionally. If you have questions about that, the Department of Justice has an office called the Office of Special Counsel for Immigration-Related Unfair Implement Practices. It's a very long name, but if you look them up on the web, they have Q&As that are designed to give employers guidance, and they also have a hotline, which is one 800 255 8155. And you can email, you can call and ask questions and get some guidance. But you need to also take care that this office is in charge of bringing charges of discrimination against employers. So, so be careful. Next, there's a lot of free uh, services out there, especially from USCIS. They're giving webinars right now about the new I-9 and also about the E-Verify system. So I encourage employers to take advantage of those services. And I think it's also incumbent on employers to make sure that their staff are trained, that whoever is doing I-9s understand what they're doing, that you have written policies about how the I-9s are going to be completed, what documents will be retained, so that these things are fairly and equally done. And the most important thing is to have someone or some entity do an audit of your company's compliance, so that way you have an honest understanding of what's going on and how compliant you are. Oh, my God. So, Brian, are you saying that in spite of ha- us having sharing this wonderful overview with them, <laughs> that they're still going to have to go through and read the forms and understand the, th- uh, the, the nuances and maybe call the government to get clarification, which is always you have to be very cautious how much information you reveal or divulge um, and attend seminars and webinars and try to get your staff trained. So what we're going to do is try to give you a quick, broad overview uh, on, on the different issues. So let's delve right into it. So, Kevin, if I can jump to you, what are the new features with the new version of the Form I-9? And I'll have you start and then maybe, Brian, you explain some more of the features. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sheila. And thank you, Brian. You know, that's a really great, um, you know, framework going into, you know, dealing with I-9 compliance. Uh, Those are all really good uh, pieces of advice. So having said that, establishing that framework, we should look at the new form itself to see, you know, what the new features are so that employers and their HR uh, people that are working on these things on a day-to-day basis just kind of uh, are put on notice about what the changes are. So the most obvious change, I think, to someone who looks at these on a uh, frequent basis is the fact that the form is now two pages long. So Section 1 has traditionally been employee information, Section 2 has been employer information, and Section 3 has been re-verification if that's necessary. Now page 1 is all for the employee, page 2 is all for the employer. Um, so trying to, to distinguish you know, uh, each respective obligation in completing the form. So the in, again, the form is now two pages long. And so, of course, there's more information that's being asked on the form. Uh, There are uh, several optional fields in the employee's contact information. So, um, and I think, Sheila, we're putting a link to the I-9 form so that uh, employers can look at that and follow along. I think it'd be helpful to actually have a printed copy of the form itself in uh, in front of you. So you'll notice that the form, if you're looking at the link, it's uh, the total form is nine pages long because the first six pages are just all instruction. And it's definitely, as Brian mentioned, advisable to read thoroughly those instructions several times, every time you do an I-9, uh, essentially, to make sure that you're getting all the right information. Uh, but then seven pages uh, 7 and 8 are the actual I-9 itself. So if we could look at the form And did together. you say that this revision is the most drastic change in the form I-9's history? Because that sounds a little like... Well, 
Yeah, actually, actually, it is, uh, Sheila, because they're asking for a lot more information. You know, the original intent of keeping this a one-page form was to keep it simple. Uh, you know, now, like Brian had mentioned, since 1986 with the passage of uh, IRCA, which, you know, established this whole scheme, there's more technology, there's more, uh, you know, systems in place. And now they're, I think USCIS uh, is trying to integrate some of those systems uh, with a paperless system like the I-94. So it's getting a little bit more more complicated, and that's why, in part, we think that's uh, uh, some drastic changes uh, a lot of these changes, like I was getting to, was you know the fact that they're asking for a lot of the employees' contact information. So we think that this could be an opportunity for uh, you know opening up for like investigations, so that uh, investigators would have access to you know contacting employees if they're if they're, if they're ever uh, conducting an audit or an investigation. So in the original form, it was clear that. Um, uh, in, in prior versions of the original form, it was it was pretty clear that uh, some fields were optional and some fields were not optional. In this new form, there's no clear indication about what is optional and what is not optional unless you look at the instructions. But I'll go ahead and spoil that right now. The Social Security, in, part, in Section 1, the Social Security number, email address, and telephone number are all optional fields. These are not required fields. Um, some f might find that surprising that the Social Security number is not a required field, but that's the case. It's not required unless unless the employer participates in E-Verify, in which case completing the Social Security number is definitely required because that's how they that's what uh, E-Verify uses to uh, verify the person's uh, work authorization. So, in addition to those changes, there's also another field, other names used, if any. Uh, that's a new field, just completely you know asking for all uh, prior names. There's also a um, request for specific foreign passport information and country of issuance. So typically a situation where a foreign, if there's a temporary foreign worker, like for example someone on H-1B whose work authorization is based on their I-94 card, uh, typically the kind of evidence that that person may provide would be the foreign passport and the I-94 card. Uh, so now that the form now is specifically asking for that information. Okay, so can I have Brian maybe explain a couple of the other changes? Sure, Sheila. One thing that we've not seen before is a block. It's actually a rectangle. It's located on the uh, middle right side of page one and two of the new I-9. It says 3D barcode, do not write in the space. There's nothing that we know of that's going to be used in this space now, but this is the technology that Kevin was referring to. This may eventually be something that they're scanning that will record information and create a case in the system that USCS and Immigration Customs Enforcement will use in tracking employees and tracking the compliance of employers. There's also uh, additional emphasis on the penalties that can be imposed if someone does not correctly or truthfully answer the questions on these forms. So near the top of page one, there has always been a warning about you have to be truthful in, in, in putting your information on this form. Now it's bold, the font is larger, and it warns that federal law provides for imprisonment and or fines for any false statements made in connection with the completion of an I-9 form. So it's obvious that the I-9 is getting some more teeth and that they're trying to uh, tell you up front that if there are intentional or erroneous uh, entries on the I-9 form that you're forewarned. This is also reflected on page two in the employer certification portion where they have also made the warning to employers in bold and larger font. I see. Okay. So, I mean, 
it's almost sounds, I mean, so scary because you all, I of, often used to think as the I-9 is sort of this fairly simple, easy to understand, easy to fill out form. But it seems from a lot of the enforcement agencies, whether it's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement or ICE working closely with Department of Labor and the Fraud Detection and National Security, which is part of USCIS, they're all really looking and noticing the I-9 as somehow being the easy, easy hook to catch and hold an employer responsible, not just for technical violations, but substantive violations, possible jail term, huge penalties worth hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And and the reason that we're doing this, again, as I said, in a two-part series is we're going to focus on some live case examples in the next session. But if you don't understand some of the fundamentals that we explain, sort of like the foundation of a building, then everything else that you build on top of that might, again, disintegrate and fall, fall off. So Continuing on with issues dealing with I-9, can a post office box be listed for the employee's address in part one? Kevin? Um, yeah, thank you, Sheila. That, that was actually specifically mentioned in the new, uh, the new handbook, which I guess we should have given that, that number. There's a handbook for the I-9 called Form M-274. Uh, the most recent version was updated at the same time the new I-9 was updated, so on uh, March 8, 2013. And it also bears the end so that no prior versions can be, uh, can be used. But in that new handbook, it specifically states that only the employee's actual residence can be listed, um, no P.O. boxes, and th- it even mentions that if there's no street address uh, for, you know, for wherever the person is living, I can't imagine this is common in the United States, but nonetheless, the handbook instructs them to enter a description of the location. So the, the actual example given in the handbook is nine miles south of I-81 to the left of the, brown wa- of the water tower. So uh, if you have an address that's that remote, then uh, listed as a descriptive thing, not uh, P.O. boxes are not uh, allowed. Okay, thanks, Kevin. And Brian, if I can come back to you, why would the U.S. CIS and ICE, the Immigration Customs Enforcement, want all of this personal contact information from workers? I mean, what's going on here? It's pretty obvious, Sheila, that this is gain. This is geared toward enforcement. And when ICE comes in and requests copies or the originals of I-9s, they are somewhat intent on checking the accuracy of the forms, and they may be looking for other immigration violations, whether they are H-1B violations, uh, illegal workers. So what ICE can do here, if if they have the email address, the telephone number, and the actual address for the workers, they can email, phone call, or visit those workers and ask, were you in, were you, in person at your employer's company headquarters when you complete the I-9? Did you complete an I-9 remotely? Have you ever been benched? They can ask a lot of questions. And the interesting thing about the email address and telephone number, now that everyone's using mobile phones and we're using Gmail and Hotmail more frequently, email addresses used to change more frequently. Telephone numbers used to change. Now people are porting their telephone numbers and keeping the same email address for years and years. If you employ someone and they leave after a certain number of years, they still may be able to use these I-9s and find someone from several years ago. So it, it's this is an important tool that ICE and Department of Labor will use in the future to track violations of employers. Well, that seems pretty scary. And and all of you smart, wise people that are on today's conference call now know and realize that you don't have to. uh, The employee's information, personal email and phone number do not have to be divulged because they're purely optional. But you wouldn't know that unless you either look, read carefully the instructions or heard the wonderful, brilliant attorneys at the multi-law firm discussing that with you. Uh, Okay, if I can jump back to you again, Kevin, when 
should the employer sign the preparer and or translator certification section? Uh, yeah, thank you, Sheila. That, that, this comes up a lot uh, when Brian and I are looking at um, I-9 audits, like in the cases that we're working on. So on page one, towards the bottom, there is a gray section called Prepare and or Translator Certification. Uh, this section should be completed in situations where section one, which should be completed by the prospective worker, the employee, uh, when, when that person needs help from someone else to prepare or just someone to translate uh, that section. So if that person receive any, receives any kind of help in completing that first section, then the prepare slash translator cert certification section should definitely be completed. This also comes up, uh, I think typically what Brian and I see in, in our practice is <clears throat> Excuse me. When uh, there are pre-populated uh, data in in section one of the form, so quite often a company might have a system in place where the I nine can be completed online, which uh, is is permitted under the rules. Um, so some of that information, like the section one information, might be typed out instead of uh, printed. And in situations where it's pre-populated by the company, by the company, then the pre the preparer slash certifi translator certification uh, section should definitely be completed in order to comply. So we've seen a lot of situations where uh, that data in Section 1 is pre-populated, but sec the preparer slash translator uh, certification section is not completed. So the best practice there would be to have someone uh, certify that if someone is helping the worker uh, prepare the form. Okay, very good. And Brian, why is there a stop sign at the bottom of page 1? Shit, thank you, Sheila. This is an interesting addition from the USCIS, but it's meant to show employees where they're supposed to stop entering information on the form. And it's clear that page one is the employee's responsibility to complete themselves, or if it's pre-populated, they're supposed to review it for accuracy and sign on the line. But page two is purely for the employer to complete. So the stop sign is just a visual indicator to tell employees, stop, give the form back to your employer. It's time for them to do their job here. Okay. Now, I know one of the questions that's often asked by many employers, especially with roving employees, consulting companies, and just generally remote location and travel is, have there been any changes, because you talked a lot about technology and changes, that would now allow for the remote completion of the I-9 forms, especially when the worker is in one geographic location and the employer or the company or the business is in another location? No, no changes have been made to address this problem. And like you're saying, the I-9 is lagging technology here. There were a lot of comments given to USAS when the, the form was proposed, trying to make some sort of concession to companies that, where employees may be working from home, they may be working in one state, and the employer may be on the other coast. But unfortunately, there is no workaround here. Either the employer must see the worker in person and review the documents in completing the I-9, and there always has been a, an allowance to have an agent complete the I-9 on behalf of the employer, but whoever is signing page two of the I-9 has to physically view the worker and look at the, the documents presented by the worker in completing the I-9. So it, there has been no change here, Sheila. Okay. Well, that's too bad that they aren't doing that, but hopefully in some next future version they will uh, look at trying to figure that out for, you know, remote locations. Kevin, so what is this about the three-day work rule regarding completion of the I-9s and how does that work? Uh, sure. So, you know, something about the new I-9 is that, you know, there are no new laws about, you know, how to complete the I-9, uh, but the I-9 itself provides more information. So, 
uh, one thing that has always been the case is uh, the three-day rule, which says that this Section 2 of the form needs to be completed within three business days of this worker's first day of employment. The f Section 1, the first page, needs to be completed before on the date of hire, the actual first day of employment. But this Section 2, completed by the employer or the authorized representative, as, as uh, Brian had mentioned, has to be completed within three business days of that first day of employment. So that's the rule. And what's interesting about the new form is that the rule is very specifically laid out in the, on the top of page 2 um, in that gray area. Previous versions of the form did not articulate this rule. You'd have to go to the handbook to see. So in some areas where they're not telling you things are uh, optional, uh, even though they are, they're, they're removing that information from the form. But they are clearly or trying to make a better job of clearly articulating what the employer's obligation when it comes to these timing requirements. So uh, so that's what the, the three-day rule is, Sheila. Okay, thanks. Uh, Brian, should employers copy and retain the documents that are presented to them by their employees? Generally, I recommend that employers do that, but there's no, the, the law does not require it, and it's optional. The, the problem that I think employers need to keep in mind is that if the I-9 is not completed correctly, if you have, you've uniformly, I, I have to emphasize, if you uniformly retain documents from every employee that you verified, if there's a mistake on the form, but you have a copy of the passport there, you have a copy of the driver's license, whatever document was presented, the U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement agent who looks at the I-9 can see that there's a, say, we'll call it almost like a typo on page two, but they look at the Xerox copy of the passport and they see, oh, the passport number is actually this. If that happens, that mistake on the employer's part can be considered a technical violation, which may result in no fine whatsoever. But if there's no backup copy of the document, a missing field on the form or one that's incorrectly completed can lead to what we would call a substantive violation, and that may end up being a fine or some other um, adverse effect on the employer. So it's up to the you – know, every situation is different, and you should discuss this with your counsel. But if all things are the same, if you are doing things correctly and you keep copies of the documents, it may end up giving more protection to the employer. Okay. And I know some lawyers go the other way and say, well, it's better not to keep copies of documents unless you remember to keep it for every single time, for every single person. And I think Brian just touched upon that because if you do it for some and not for others, it comes back to the issue that Kevin mentioned about discrimination. I think maybe Brian had mentioned discriminatory practice. So you have to be very, very careful as businesses, employers, HR people who are listening to this conference call to make sure that you don't mess up. But I will say that, you know, in working with Brian on a lot of I-9 uh, audits that uh, anecdotally, you know, we've seen a lot of situations where we were able to identify violations as technical violations, which could be correctable if, you know, ICE came knocking on their door, uh, if they retained the documents as opposed to the substantive violation that it would have been had they not retained those documents. So, and But that's probably the most critical thing that you mentioned, Sheila. Whatever you do, make it a uniform policy. So if you're going to collect documents for all worker, for, for the workers, make that the uniform policy. Please do not have a distinct, uh, a different policy for your foreign national workers versus U.S. workers. Treat everybody to the same. So if you're going to uh, retain documents, retain for all. Don't retain more than you're required to retain. 
if you decide not to retain the documents, then make that a uniform policy for everyone. Wonderful, wonderful. I know we're kind of, I'm kind of being mindful of the time. We're about 20 minutes into it, and we have maybe another 15 or 20 minutes to wrap up because we always try to have it completed within 40 minutes or 45 minutes at the latest, 30 to 45 minutes. So listen, for re- regarding the list of acceptable documents, the old list A, B, and C, has there been any changes with respect to that? There hasn't been any changes for the uh, the documents that are accepted, but their description of the acceptable documents has changed. And I think one that's uh, most helpful is the Social Security card. So in the previous version of the form, they basically said you can accept a Social Security card as a List C document as long as it uh, does not um, as long as it doesn't limit the person's authorization to work in the United States. Uh, for for those that have looked at a lot of these social security cards, you know that there are different many different options to what limiting language, what restrictive language would be on the social security card. So I'm looking on page nine of the I-9 form, which is the list of exceptional documents, and in the top right corner, list C. Now they put some very specific the all the specific language that could potentially be on that social security card that is restricted for employment purposes. The three uh, uh, all caps. Uh, uh, statements here, not valid for employment, valid only for work authorization, work with INS authorization, which you'll see for the older Social Security cards, and then valid for work only with DHS authorization, which is kind of the more contemporary language that's typically used for the more the more recent Social Security cards. So it's, it's very clear here that if you see any of those three options on a Social Security card, it can't be used for purposes of establishing employment, employment authorization, which is a List C document. Okie dokie. So... How should the employer handle a rehire candidate, Brian? Sure, Sheila. Because the new form is the exclusive form that's going to be available after May 8th, the employer should stop using prior forms, use the new two-page form, and complete that for anyone who has you know, quit, been terminated, and is then rehired afterwards. So essentially, a rehire should be treated just the same as a new hire, and you have to comply with all the same rules and the document retention for the I-9 form. Okay. And what, what about handling re-verifications? It's, it's the same, Sheila. You have to use the new form, and, and this is a little counterintuitive. The existing I-9s that you may have going back 5, 7, 20 years, at the bottom, they'll have a re-verification section in Section 3. You might think, oh, I'll just go back and I'll re-verify the form that we completed in 2005, but that would be wrong. After May the 8th, you need to use the new form for the re-verification, and you should attach that to your existing I-9. You can't get rid of either one, but keep them together, use the new form, and then if you have a document retention policy that allows you to get rid of the I-9s after the statutory retention period has passed, you can get rid of the I-9s later on. But essentially, you have to use the new form for rehires, re-verifications, and new hires. And just to be clear for everyone, we don't ever re-verify current employees. Correct. Um, I know that's a big deal, and, and people who know it know it, but those who don't sometimes think they have to be diligent and go and get everybody's paperwork cleaned up. You would n- almost never do that unless, I guess, you're re-verifying your entire organization because you realize the prior HR person had totally messed up or something, very, very unusual situations where you're doing it before being subject to an audit or investigation by ICE or DHS. So, Kevin, jumping back to you, how do we handle employee name changes? You touched upon it briefly. 
Yeah, name changes are interesting because the the new handbook has some some really interesting new language that I just wanted to share. So whenever there's a name change, the the handbook and it's on page 23 of the handbook if you're following along, it says that you should t- you the employer should take steps to be reasonably assured of the employee's identity and the veracity of the employee's claim of a legal of a legal name change. These steps may include asking the reason why the legal change of name uh, occurred and to provide doc- to provide documentation of the legal name change to keep with the I-9 so that your actions are, quote, well documented if the government asks to inspect your form's I-9. So to me, this is a real tricky situation because you had mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation, Sheila, about striking that balance between your due diligence and making sure you're complying with, uh, you know, I-9 rules, but also not going too far to be perceived potentially as discriminatory. So uh, the, in this specific case, you know, the form, the, the handbook is being very clear that, you know, you should ask, you know, if somebody's changing their name and you should keep that documentation along with the I-9, even though that's not documentation that you would normally keep. But this is something that this, the new handbook is specifically saying to do. So it would be compliant to do so. And hopefully most employers would only experience name changes through the most common reason, which I would imagine would be name, uh, marriage. Um, But if those situations arise, and the handbook talks about this too, in cases where an employee has worked for you using a false identity, but is currently work authorized, the I-9 rules do not require termination of employment. However, there may be other laws, contractual obligations, or company policies that you should consider prior to taking action. So the handbook is a little, uh, a little ambiguous there, but um, Brian and I, we, we've had situations where um, we did an I-9 audit for, um, for a company where um, a worker provi- provided a Social Security card. The company did their due diligence and making sure that they uh, filled out the I-9 correctly. And then, you know, many years pass, and then this person goes back to the employer and says, hey, here's my real Social Security card because, you know, this person got married, and now this person has a, is a, lawful, a lawful permanent resident. Well, in that situation... The company did not have actual knowledge that this was an unauthorized worker at the time he provided the first Social Security card. At the time of providing the legitimate Social Security card, at that time, that person is an authorized worker because they're presenting a legitimate Social Security card. So our advice in that case was to you know, do the re-verification and update the, Social, uh, update the I-9. Um, but when asked, you know, what they should do about the employment, you know, again, we, we kind of relied on this language a little bit and said, you know, well, it's, it may be discriminatory, actually, to, to fire this person because at this time they are a lawful U.S. worker. So, um, and again, as you mentioned, as uh, Brian had mentioned earlier in the, in the call, whenever you have these weird situations, because just about any, you know, a new situation can come up every day, depending on how big your company is. If you're unsure about exactly what it is to do, after looking at the instructions in the handbook, call that hotline, the um, Office of Special Counsel, because uh, you can give them, you know, hypothetical situations without identifying who you are. Here's the situation that I have, and I personally have done that, um, uh, called them when I'm trying to get some guidance on how to proceed. So... Um, the name change issue is uh, is interesting. This is this is this language is a little bit uh, change of pace from the other language that you see in the handbook. So I wanted to specifically raise this. Well, it's and it's interesting that you mentioned that, Kevin, because usually a lot of the calls, at least I get conference calls uh, when I'm doing my consultations, is because a lot of Indian names tend to be very very long with no vowels, a lot of consonants. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, Venkat Raman Subramaniam Swami, and so they say, well, I just want to be Venkat Swami, for example, and uh, so they get. Uh, they wanted so a lot of the changes are actually men 
And it has nothing to do with marriage other than making it more convenient in America. Mm-hmm. And being a woman's liberal myself, I'm not really excited about this name change by women. <laughs> men do it half the times. I'm much more willing. But I know that deviates just from the topic here. <laughs> Two men on my panel, I guess I had to. <laughs> well, one other point that you raised with that, Sheila, that, that's a legitimate point, is um, this other names issue now. that It says mm-hmm. other names, including maiden names, that they're asking for in Section 1. So you do need to include all those variations of your name if you're if you're shortening it um, in the I-9. And, you know, right. this is something that comes up in naturalization. Also, sure, so. sure. Uh, Brian, if I can jump back to you. So how will the paperless I-94 card or the automated I-94 card, uh, how do you think that's going to affect the I-9? It shouldn't change it too much, but we're definitely in a season of change here with the new I-9 and with the paperless I-94 card system. What has happened in the past is that the worker comes through, the CBP officer gives them a paper I-9, they enter through the airport, they hopefully come to your office, and they say, I'm I'm present, I'm ready for work, let's do the I-9. And you are not actually supposed to ask for an I-94 card. I think a lot of HMA employers are used to getting a passport I-94 card endorsed for H-1B, and that is acceptable under a list A, but you really are supposed to give a copy of page 9 of the I-9, the list of acceptable documents, and the worker chooses the documents. But if that worker is, say, an H-1B worker, and they've come in through the airport, the port of entry, at that time, they won't have an I-94 card anymore. They'll have a stamp in their passport. The stamp will have the port of entry, the date, the classification they were admitted into, and they can then go to the CP website and print out a classic I-94 card. So if you are presented with a passport with a stamp in it or you're presented with a printout from the CPP website that shows an I-94 card, either one of those will be acceptable. Okay. So is the H-1B stamp in the passport considered as proof in any sense of employment authorization, Kevin? Um, The H-1B stamp could be considered proof of work authorization when you have situations where the uh, extension, basically extension of stay situations. So let's say you have somebody here on H-1B status with a company. Their H-1B status is getting ready to expire, and they they have the... uh, new H-1B extension petition timely filed before the expiration of the current I-94 card. The uh, and, and this is in the instructions in page 21 and 22 of that M-274 handbook. Uh, it tells you how to complete the, the I-9 and, and what steps you need to take throughout the process. Essentially, when the ex- when the um, when the H-1B petition is is filed, you would include a copy of the receipt notice and a copy of the, uh, the evidence that the payment was made in with the I-9. And then once the H-1B petition, if the H-1B petition is approved, then you would update the Section 3 re-verification section for, uh, for those situations. But in situations where um, there's just an H-1B stamp in the passport and that's it, this is kind of what Brian was talking about. Um, you do need to have evidence of status and you need to have, uh, you know, pre- you need to have the I-94 card. Um, and as Brian meant, meant, mentioned, uh, the I-94 is now going to be paperless with respect to the government, but that just means that the foreign national worker can go online. Um, CBP's web, I, I believe it's going to be cbp.gov forward slash I-94 is going to be the link where, uh, it's not up now, but it, that's going to be the link where foreign nationals were going to be able to go and get the I-94 cards to make it a little bit easier if that's the piece of evidence they choose to use to establish their work authorization um, for purposes of completing the I-9. Okay. And just to be clear again, the H-1B stamp in the passport is not considered proof of employment authorization, but the receipt notice is allowed 
to show proof that it was timely filed when you were in status. That's right. The receipt notice for like in the an H-1 extension, extension which gives you the maximum 240-day extension of status under the H-1B portability provisions. 240 days of work authorization, not necessarily status, but yeah, work authorization right. during that time. It gives you 240 days, which is approximately eight months mm-hmm. of work authorization. Uh, and even though it doesn't give you valid non-immigrant status, it really is considered to give you status to stay here. Otherwise, if you have work authorization but you don't have status, then you can't be in the United States. And so. there's been there's been district court cases about that. But essentially, you're in a period of authorized stay when you when you have that work authorization under the 240-day rule. And then if the subsequent petition is approved, and we're getting a little bit outside of our um, – but if the subsequent petition is approved, then you are retroactively determined to have been in status Uh, during that time. Okay. So So this was a really, really thorough, detailed analysis of the I-9 and the overview of I-9s because of the new form. And we want to use this as an opportunity because a lot of the cases deal with employers being held to very, very high standards um, and, and being subject to all kinds of penalties. So we're going to try to jump now from I-9 to go into dealing a little bit with investigations by ICE, which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, Generally, as most of us and most of you are aware, that ICE conducts investigations of employers in two primary areas. One is the Form I-9 compliance, which we just discussed, and second, they do undertake raids looking for undocumented or unauthorized workers at an employer's workplace. So it could be like in large companies where many people are not validly authorized or provide false documents. Or a lot of times with H-1B employers, it is where company says they're working at my headquarters location, but actually the employee is a consultant at a client site. And that is also considered an undocumented or unauthorized worker because they're not authorized to work in that work location where the H-1B petition was filed. So, Brian, how seriously should the employer take the risk of an uh, an ICE investigation? Uh, Very seriously, Sheila. The the issue may seem rather small that I-9s were not completed properly, but Kevin and I have both seen situations where ICE investigators are coming at the same time in the same car as Department of Labor investigators. And in both situations, whether it's Department of Labor or ICE, the employer has the obligation to produce documents upon request to the investigating agency. When they come together, they can ask for any I-9s, any public access files, payroll documents. They can really ask for a lot of information that can show them where the violations are. So if you have investigators coming, I urge you to have an attorney involved. Be very careful not to speak to federal agents without having your attorney either present if possible, maybe on the telephone at the very least, and to know who you're talking to. Ask for their business cards and Xerox their business cards so that way even if they come in and speak to you for a short time, you can then send a fax or an email of those cards to your attorney and have your attorney follow up with those investigators. Well, yeah. so basically you're saying if two different agencies, one agents, federal agents, one from ICE and one from Department of Labor are knocking on your door as the company, that it is usually something you have to have your antenna up and really get a little concerned because they've probably figured out that there's some violation for them to invest time and money with multiple agencies coming in? Yeah, we've seen that in several investigations that turned into criminal investigations recently and have led to indictments issued by federal courts. And there are what we call memorandum of understanding between ICE, Department of Labor, USCIS, FDNS, all these different agencies, I believe Department of State as well. They all have these agreements where they're going to share 
wire information back and forth. And if the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, Department of Justice is behind it, they can use the DOL or the ICE agents to obtain information without a subpoena because you have an obligation to cooperate with them. So if they're coming in and they're asking questions, it may not just be an I-9 visit or a Department of Labor visit for public access files. It could be that they're looking deeper at the company, and you may cooperate for a long time thinking this is great, and then there may be harsh consequences later on. So basically be very, very cautious and are on the side of being careful in calling the attorney company, your company lawyer, your immigration lawyer. Uh, Hopefully if they don't have a fabulous team Um, then feel free to contact us at the Murti Law Firm. God forbid you should get such a knock on your door rather than thinking you're being very helpful and cooperative because every piece of information that you give could be and will be used against you in some kind of a criminal investigation. So, um, Brian, does a company need to worry if they don't employ any foreign workers? Do they Should they have any concerns whatsoever? Absolutely. Uh, the number of companies that have I-9 violations are not limited to H-1B employers or employers that have other you know, immigrants from cl- different classifications. So I-9 is a responsibility for every employer in the country, and you have to address that responsibility. So everyone needs to be responsible for this, and no one should take it lightly because it's not an H-1B employer problem. It's a U.S. employer problem, and I don't think a lot of companies know how to be compliant. Okay. So this is every every employee that was hired after November 6, 1986 under IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, really is now subject to, and that's where the I-9 rules came into effect. And another uh, suggestion that we've uh, recommended is have your HR team or people actually conduct what we call a self-audit um, to or an internal audit, which will really allow you as an employer to assess the level of compliance within the company and whether you need to make any changes in I-9 policies and practices um, and what the level of risk of a federal investigation could end up becoming for violations with the company. Um, So, Kevin, if I can ask you a question on self-audits, by is that more important for H-1B employers then? Uh, H-1B self-auditing is definitely very, very important. I would say equally, if not greater in, uh, in importance to the I-9 auditing. Um, so Brian and I and, and, and the Murthy Law Firm were noticing an increase in investigations of, of H-1B employers looking at their public access files uh, to determine if there were you know, violations with the H-1B program. Now, you know, as employers listening probably know, the H-1B program is probably a lot more complicated in uh, complying than you know, I-9 compliance. So there are back wage violations that could potentially uh, be assessed from Department of Labor, um, leveling issues. So you know, if, a, if a work H-1 worker was put as, uh, as a level one worker, but Department of Labor might think that this is more of like a level two wage, they could assess back wages in that way. Um, you know, benching issues. So we see a lot of this in in our practice. So uh, looking at the public access files, which is the start point for one of these investigations, looking at these public access files to make sure that they were completed correctly could potentially mitigate some of these headaches that could arise down the road if, you know, an investigation is is started. So um, self-audits, whether an H-1B, an attorney is involved or just from their own HR, it's a good first step to make sure, you know, to get an assessment of the situation. Okay, very good. Thank you. And uh, what is the best way to conduct an internal audit, Brian, if you could go over that briefly? Sure, Sheila. The best way is to have an outside person or a company do the audit for you. Uh, Everyone tries their best to comply, but if you're dealing with possible prosecution 
for issues that, that may have come up in the past, you need to have an independent person, independent auditor, do the audit of your company to get an honest assessment of what your compliance level is. And we at Murthy Law Firm do these audits on a daily basis. I know Kevin and I are in our second decade of auditing now. And it's important to have someone who who's, uh, uh, has a good knowledge uh, base of auditing and has an objective view of this. So I would say you, you have your HR doing it every day, but you need to have someone from the outside do it. Maybe Even if it's a year. random sampling to start off or a much larger, you know, pick a certain number of... Absolutely. Again, as, uh, what do they say? Uh, prevention is always cheaper than cure. A stitch in time saves nine. Mm, but basically, I know I'm being very sensitive. I realize we're kind of running out of time. So what I want to say is a uh, piece of advice for you to consider is never speak with a government agent if you can help it without, unless your attorney is present or around, because an admission uh, of some in, innocuous, innocent statements made by you could be considered a violation, could be considered an admission before a federal government agent and therefore could result in serious penalties, financial penalties, debarment, criminal penalties and sanctions against you as individual employers, against HR people, against the company. Uh, also, I want to tell you that, God forbid, you should get a knock on the door or something goes wrong. Uh, we at the Murthy Law Firm just, uh, you know, in the last, I would say, five to 10 years is when we realized more and more and more companies were panicking about such knocks that we actually created this team and hired uh, fantastic people on our team to work to help our clients at a very, very reasonable cost to do an amazing job so that we can help to represent you and or your company. Uh, in our next session of this part two series, we will touch upon enforcement and employer issues, uh, go over some detailed cases uh, where the Department of Labor and Immigration and Customs Enforcement found violations and the kinds of penalties so that you can see if you fit into any of those uh, kinds of stories or case examples and how you can try to minimize uh, risk for yourself and your company. Thank you again for joining us. We really look forward to continuing to help you all have a terrific day. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Brian Green, Kevin Andrews, and the entire Murthy Law Firm and our Murthy Law family, we wish you a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week. Bye-bye.